Uh, people are afraid to say certain things that aren't politically correct because it might offend a certain few and there's a certain way to be that is generally accepted and let's go with the flow and not upset things. There was a French philosopher who said, those who walk on the well-trodden path have rocks thrown at them or actually on the, on the well-trodden path throw rocks at the people who are walking on a new path. And that's always the case is that nobody likes to stand out but to blend in. In fact, there are people who try to blend in with the drab background and they take their cues from the multitude, from the crowd. Noah did not. In fact, everything about his life shows that he stood out from everybody around him. The watchword today is don't make waves. Don't be different. In verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. There's a biblical mandate that we discussed last week that tells us, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To go with the flow doesn't take any courage. To do what everybody else is doing doesn't take any strength. As the old saying goes, any dead fish can float downstream. Anybody can think like everybody else and do what everybody else does, but to stand up and say, that's not right, and I'm not going to live that way, and I don't care about man's opinions, that takes strength. I'm sure it took strength for Noah. Don't you think he was the laughingstock of everybody in that area, building a boat 500 miles from any ocean, a boat large enough to carry that many animals. I mean, it was not a tugboat. This was a major endeavor. He was the laughingstock of every conformist in his area. Noah didn't go with the flow. Noah did make waves. Actually, God made the waves. He just made the boat. But he didn't care what other people thought about him because in Genesis it says, God was pleased with Noah because he walked with God, just like Enoch Noah walked with God. Whenever a person lives in close fellowship with God, instead of the low level of everybody else, that person has greater perspective, deeper vision. That person sees what nobody else can see. I found out this week that an eagle has eight times as many visual cells per cubic centimeter as a human, which enables an eagle to see what humans can't. In fact, an eagle flying at 600 feet above a canyon floor can spot an object the size of a dime moving through six inches of grass at 600 feet. An eagle can spot a three-inch fish jumping in a lake five miles away. He can see what nobody else can see. In this verse, it says that Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. And remember, it says in verse 1, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The evidence of things, or actually the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'll look over in verse 27. By faith, Noah forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. All of these men and women of faith saw more than the person living on the level of the conformist of this world. And I don't think Noah cared much if people liked him or not. He walked by faith and not by sight. Abel was a great example of 
a faith that worships. Enoch is a great example of a faith that fellowships. And Noah is the example of a faith that obeys. And remember what James says, faith without works is dead. You could apply that greatly to Noah's life. As you look in verse 7 with me, and we're going to actually keep a marker here and turn back to Genesis 6, but before you do, the first thing we notice about him, and we're going to notice five things about the faith and the life of Noah, is that he was warned by God about the future. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not seen. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6, and let's look at it. Noah was warned that God was going to judge the earth. God loved the earth. God created people. But they sinned to such an extent that God said, I've had enough. My mercy can only last so long, and now judgment time must come. God warned Noah about his judgment. Now, why was it that God judged the earth? The reason I bring this up is because God has also warned this generation of a judgment to come. And like Noah's generation, people aren't listening anymore. People don't care. People will laugh at you when you proclaim such things. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. But there were some things about Noah's generation that really mirror our generation that caused God to judge the earth. First of all, there was a breakdown of the traditional family and there was a replacement of a pervasive sexual revolution. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that is, in a sexual manner, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old men of renown. There is a debate as to were these demonic fallen from heaven beings who had intercourse with women, or is it the sons of Cain uh, intermarrying with the uh, 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 daughters of Seth? And there's a big debate. It doesn't matter. The idea is that the family unit and the sanctity of marriage as it was intended from the creation, there was a breakdown in it. And it was being replaced by a self-styled sexual freedom. Boy, if that doesn't sound like today, I don't know what does. Chief sociology professor at Harvard University simply said, let me sum it up for you. We are preoccupied in our society with sex. That's the preoccupation at every level. The average American television viewer sees 9,230 sexual acts every year, or implied sexual acts. 81% of those are outside of marriage as he watches television. Divorce has risen 700% in this century. 700%, not 25, 30, 700%. There's now one divorce for every 1.8 marriages, and every six out of 10 kids born in 1990 will be in a single parent home before he reaches the age of 18. Those are the statistics. Our nation is very much like the nations of old that God had judged. It has been wisely stated, a family can survive without a nation but a nation cannot survive without the family. And America is reaping the consequences of turning their back on God, of leaving God's intended purpose for a man and a woman. 
With the sexual revolution, we have now sexually transmitted diseases like never thought of before. In Atlanta, the Center for Disease Control says by the year 2000, 20 million people will be affected by the AIDS virus. 20 million people worldwide. In leaving the traditional family, we now have the broken family. We are reaping what has been sown. Now look down at verse 5 of the same chapter. There was an abounding wickedness we discovered last week. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. I didn't read verse 5, and I said, look at it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. How descript. Every thought was only evil continually. When people leave God, out of their thought processes, there's this huge vacuum. And Paul, writing about the ancient times, said they became futile or empty in their thoughts. Their foolish heart was darkened. They did not wish to retain God in their knowledge. Because of that, a recent survey said Americans have no moral base, no consensus. Americans now make up their own rules of life as they go along. They decide which of the Ten Commandments they would like to obey and which they would not like to obey and toss those out. The same survey said most Americans lie regularly and 42% of the American public, according to this survey, confess to having regular, violent, sexual urges. Speaking of violence, that was another thing that God saw upon the earth that He said... Enough's enough. Judgment time has come. Look down a few verses in verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That sounds like a headline, doesn't it? Like the James Jordan headline we read of the two 18-year-old boys killing Michael Jordan's father and one of them not even feeling bad about it. During the time of Noah, actually Cain was the first murderer, we remember. He killed his brother Abel, but by this time, violence was an epidemic. There was no sacred value to life any longer. Violence had filled the earth, and God said, I've had enough. The end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is filled with such violence. I got a phone call this week from a man named Lenny. He's a man in the uh, Maryland area. We have a broadcast in the Washington, D.C., in the East Coast, and he listened to our broadcast. And in one of my messages, I spoke about my brother who had died, and he said, I wanted to call you because I thought you could relate to me. My brother also died, but my brother was murdered. And he says, Skip, my brother was a drug enforcement officer who was involved in putting a lawyer behind bars because of drug trafficking the lawyer was involved in. The day before the trial, the lawyer hid outside my mother's home, and as my brother walked out the front door and turned on the sidewalk, this man came out and put three hollow-point bullets in his back and cold blood murdered my brother in my mother's front yard. He said, I am coping with what that means in my life, the loss of my brother being killed violently by murder. 
One prosecutor, this last week in Newsweek magazine, almost throwing up his arms, said, violence has become a way of American life. It's become a, a way of life. One in every four Americans say that they have acted on their violent impulses and an equal number think that they will do so at some time in the future. I, was, uh, I just thought it was just me uh, until the last probably month. I've noticed that almost every time in Newsweek magazine there's something about youth violence. Have you noticed that? That the networks and the news magazines are realizing that there is such an increase out-of-control violence among our youth. We don't know what to do about it. The other night, I was watching that little um, talk show or that little uh, info show, Current Affair, and they interviewed Richard Ramirez. Nine years ago, he was the night stalker in Los Angeles, killing 14 people, raping most of his victims. He was put behind bars, and they interviewed him, and sort of with a brazen look in his interview, he said, Lucifer dwells in every one of us. Evil is within all of us. I've given up on love and hope and peace a long time ago. He was given death sentence, the gas chamber. But the interviewer concluded by saying he will probably die of old age, given our legal system being so lenient. And the commentator ended the broadcast by saying, justice delayed is justice denied. In the August 2nd Newsweek magazine, a portion of an article appeared. I'd like to read it to you. I think it sort of sums up the current mentality. Americans have developed a culture of violence surpassing in its pervasiveness anything we've ever experienced before. It shows up in speech, in our play, in our entertainment, in business style. There's a rampant make-my-day ethic expressed at various levels of our culture. Our natural icons tend to be men who excel at violence. God warned Noah, I've had enough. I love these people. I'm patient with these people. But I won't always strive forever. And I'm going to judge him, Noah. And I want you to build me a boat. Because I want you and your family saved. That the generations can continue after. But judgment time has come. Now God is warning this world of judgment. It won't be a flood. But God will judge the heavens and the earth. And I know it's mocked these days, just like Noah was mocked, but there's a real heaven, folks, and there's a real hell. And just in case you'd be one of those people who would laugh at hell, and I'll just tell you something, there's no parties in hell. Often I hear people say, oh yeah, I don't want to go to heaven, all the stuffed shirts are there. I want to go to hell where all my friends are, my friends are going to be there. Well, that might be true, but you won't be having a good time with them. There is torture, there is misery, there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. These are the words of Jesus Christ and eternal separation from God. There is a judgment coming. Oftentimes you'll read in tabloid magazines, people will say, I had a close brush with death and I went to the beyond and I saw these warm lights and fuzzies and it's so wonderful, don't be afraid of death. Not everybody has those experiences. In fact, Jerry Lewis, the comedian, in a newspaper article spoke of his close brush with death. He was having heart surgery, and he said, quote, Technically, I was dead for 17 seconds. Believe me, Judy Garland isn't there, you know, singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. It is not beautiful. It's bleak. I heard a story of a man who had too much to drink. He swerved off the side of the road in a drunken stupor, and his car crashed into the Shell gas station sign, and it caused the shaking of the sign. The S fell off. The man went to sleep, and he woke up looking up. Instead of seeing Shell... 
It said, hell, open 24 hours. You know, I know nobody likes to hear messages of hell. In fact, I know that a lot of people say, yeah, you know, uh, love those churches that don't preach fire and brimstone. Love the nicey-nicey, pat on the back, make me feel good kind of places. You know what? If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to feel pretty bad that life without Him, eternity without Him is eternal separation from Him. It's not a pretty picture. Out of love, I must warn you of eternal judgment to come. What do you do in view of that? In view of the fact that judgment is coming like it did at the time of Noah, Solomon tells us this, A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. There's an ark. His name is Jesus. He's the only refuge and the only safety from the flood of judgment that is to come. You've also got to know something. God does not delight in judgment. God delights in mercy. The Bible says that over and over again. In verse 6 of this chapter, God was grieved in his heart. God didn't go, all right, I get to judge them. He was grieved in his heart. It broke God's heart. God is not willing that any should perish, the Bible tells us, but that all should come to repentance. And for 120 years, Noah built this boat, and there was 120 years of grace and mercy that the world could turn. The people that saw Noah build the boat, at least those people had a chance but they refused. God is a God of mercy. But one day, the book of mercy shall be closed. The book of grace, the generation of grace, the patience of God will be exhausted. And God will say, I've had enough. Judgment will fall. I heard of a minister even who had gotten a traffic ticket, was taken into court. And before the sentencing, the judge said, do you have anything to say, reverend? The reverend said, yes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The judge put his gavel down and said, You owe $100. Go and sin no more. <laughs> there's a time for mercy, but there's also a time for judgment. He was divinely warned. He was warned by God. That's what our text tells us first. Secondly, he was wisely prompted. He was wisely prompted. Notice how verse 7 is stated. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. He received God's words, and then he had to act upon them. Before he acted in obedience, he pondered those words, and he was moved. Something motivated him. There's always a connection between thought and action. What would Noah do with that warning? Would he say, ah, big deal? Or would he take it to heart, be prompted by the correct motivation, and then obey? That's what he did. And his motivation is that he was moved by godly fear. And that word in Greek is eulabeomai, which simply means reverence or cautious obedience because I have reverence for God. And here's the point. Noah heard God's word and he respected God's word. He respected God's message. He respected God. He didn't need a sign or a second warning. There's a man who went to an IRS office to pay his back taxes because he'd gotten a second warning from the IRS which said, if you don't pay your tax money, we'll take legal action. He went to the IRS office with the check and he said, listen, I didn't get the first notice. If I would have gotten the first notice, if I would have seen it, I'd have paid before. They said, well, we ran out of first notices. Besides that, we found that giving people a second notice is much more effective. <laughs> well, that's true, but 
Noah didn't need a second notice or a second warning or some sign that indeed God had spoken. He was moved with godly fear. He was motivated to serve the Lord and obey the Lord because he had a respect for God. What moves you? What motivates you? When you look at the world, you read Newsweek and Time. You see all the television programs and the news programs I see. What effect does that have on you? What motivation? When you see all of the garbage and the abounding wickedness in this society, are you moved with godly fear? I find that Christians have one of three responses to an ungodly world. Either intimidation, isolation, or infiltration. Some people are intimidated. The world's so big, it's so bad, I'm so small and so insignificant, I can't do anything, so I'll just hide my head in the sand. Look for a hole to hide in. Then there are people who are isolationists. They see the wickedness and they think, it's so bad, I better protect me and my family from all the wickedness. That's all they do. But then, infiltration. There are some people who are moved with godly fear and they see all of the wickedness, but they're motivated out of compassion to preach the truth to live the truth and to obey God because they respect God and they respect His mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. They infiltrate, they get involved in the lives of individuals who don't know Christ. If you do that, if you become one who infiltrates the world with the truth, will you stick out? You betcha. You won't go with the flow. Will you make waves? Did Noah stick out? Hey, old man, what you building? Boat. What? Uh, Excuse me, I'm not building a boat, a ship. I'm going to take two of every animal and stick it in this boat and water's going to come and carry it away. You think Noah stuck out? Whenever you don't blend in, you stick out. Every nonconformist sticks out. Anyone who doesn't go the way of the world will stand out. And Christians ought to be ultimate nonconformists, not going the way of the world. I've heard this story before in different sources, but in the early 1900s, there was a man who walked the streets of Los Angeles with a Bible and a sandwich board. It is a piece of wood in the front, a piece of wood hanging off his back. And on the front, he would walk up and down the streets, and the message said, I am a fool for Jesus. People would laugh at that until he turned around. And the back side of it said, whose fool are you? I'm a fool for Jesus. Whose fool are you? Everybody's a fool for something in the eyes of somebody, right? We see political activists and people get involved for their little cause. And we think, hey, that guy's going, he's radical. Better to be a fool for Jesus than to just be a fool. And Noah stood out, but he was the guy that got on the boat. He was moved with godly fear. The third thing we notice about his faith and his life in verse 7 is that he walked in obedience. He walked in obedience, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. He listened, he pondered, and he acted. See, there's a progressive nature of faith. Listening to the Word of God, grabbing a hold of it because you respect it, and then living it out and obeying it. And what a demonstration of faith that was. Such a big vessel, such a monumental task, something that you would require all of your life, all of your energy, for 120 years putting everything aside and building a boat. But if he didn't build a boat, he'd really be a hypocrite, wouldn't he? I mean, imagine what it would be like if Noah were to preach a message like this. God's going to judge the world. It's going to rain. And the great waters of the deep will break up and the earth will be covered with water one day. 
And the only means of escape is a boat. And what if he just said that but didn't build a boat? What would they have asked him? Where's the boat? If you believe so strongly in this, where's the boat? Faith without works is dead, Noah. If you really believe there's a flood, cut down a few trees, hammer a few nails. Let's see some evidence that you believe. I believe that Satan wishes to polarize Christians into one of two camps. There is the camp of works and there's the camp of faith apart from works. On one hand, he'll say, if you really want to stay a Christian, you have to work, 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 work to maintain your salvation. That's legalism. Ever meet a legalistic person? They forgot to read their chapter one day and they feel like they're going to hell. But then there's license. That's the person who says, oh, I acknowledge God and I was a kid, raised my hand, went forward. I'm a Christian. But I can do anything I want to do anytime I want to do it. That's license. Both of those are wrong extremes. The truth is, you're saved by faith alone. But faith works if it's real faith. It produces action. It's like the oars of a boat. The boat is the Christian life. One oar is faith. One oar is works. You paddle just one, you'll go in circles. You paddle both, you'll get somewhere. Noah built a boat. Irma Bombeck used to give great advice. She said, never trust a doctor whose houseplants have died. (laughs) Good stuff. If he can't fix his ficus, he's not going to help your fungus. He's a physician. The unbelieving world is not going to come to Christians for direction if they don't live what they say. If they talk about the need for a boat but never go out there and do it. Noah obeyed. He walked in obedience. Now, at this point, let me just discuss an issue because it is in the minds of some people when we talk about Noah's Ark. They go, now, you're speaking allegorically, of course, aren't you, Skip? You don't really believe all those animals could fit in a literal boat, be propped up above the earth and land on Mount Ararat, as the Scripture says. It's an allegory, right? It's a myth. Tell me you believe it's a myth. No, I don't. I'm one of those weird people who believe in a literal ark that little animals, two by two, actually got on a boat and it floated. Well, how could all those animals fit on the boat? Well, if you examine the Scriptures and you look at the directions using the cubit, which is the Old Testament reckoning 17 to 18 inches, three decks were built on the boat, and there was about 95,700 square feet, a total volumetric capacity of 1,936,000 cubic feet, The capacity of the ark could carry 520 railroad stock cars filled with animals. That was the capacity. The average stock car carries about 240 sheep. And so uh, you could have 125,000 sheep or the equivalent thereof on the ark. Dr. Um, John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, in looking back, said... At that time, there were less than 17,600 of the currently known species of mammals, birds, and amphibians that would have needed shelter. So with two of each needed to get on the ark, you'd have 35,000 animals, and you'd need five of the clean ones, not just two by two, but five clean ones. So you would not have any more than 79,000 animals in a boat that had the capacity of carrying 125,000. There was room left over. And they each had their stalls, Yeah, but how could all those animals migrate from all over the earth? Well, he didn't have to go looking for them. And that's an argument people often bring up. Wow, did Noah go to Australia and to 
New Mexico? No. The Bible says in chapter 6, verse 20, God says, they will come to you. Couldn't God have put migratory instincts within these animals? You say, to travel so far? Well, before the flood, it never rained, the Bible tells us. There was this antediluvian water vapor canopy around the earth, which gave the earth a greenhouse effect, which dispersed the species of life more evenly than they are today because of the extreme weather changes. So probably they didn't have to travel very far because most of the species were close by. And so you mean that there was a literal flood? Yeah. Covered the whole earth? Yeah. How could it cover the whole earth? You mean it just rained? No, it didn't just rain. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. God says, The fountains of the great deep were broken. The fountains of the great deep were broken. It didn't just rain. This speaks of a general upheaval on the ocean floor, something we call cleavage or faulting that would push the waters up. One scientific geologist, Stephen Austin, said, One can imagine a continent surrounded on four sides by oceans containing many seafloor springs that ruptured. Waves created by many point sources of energy would have impinged on the continent as long as the energetic disturbance of the oceans was maintained. The rise of water over the continent would have created a corresponding lowering of the level of the oceans until the entire continent was completely covered. And there are several geologists that call themselves catastrophic geologists who don't believe in millions of years of sediment level uh, layering, but something that was done quickly, and they point in many of their writings to the evidence. But let's go back to our text after the flood. Not only did he walk in obedience, but the fourth thing to notice about this man and his faith is that he witnessed against the world. Again, verse 7. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah's lifestyle of obedience served only to condemn people who were disobeying God. Black never looks so black until you put it next to white. You put black next to black and we're all the same. Disobedient people, ungodly people around each other, we're all sort of the same. But get a godly person in the midst and the blackness shows up. There was a young man of Athens that went to Socrates one day and he said, Socrates, I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me what I am. I remember one time working at a hospital in Orange, California. And one, it was Monday morning actually and I was whistling and the guy came up to me, the, one of the supervisors and said, would you quit whistling? It's Monday. You're always happy. What are you joyful for? My joy showed up his misery. He didn't like it. Would you please be grumpy like me? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Neither do they come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. Like rats who scurry when the lights are turned on, Noah's generation, instead of turning to God, drowned in the flood. Can you imagine the look on their faces when that boat started lifting up? And Noah's face looked out at the generation perishing, a righteous face condemning the unrighteous who did not believe. His life witnessed against them. He'd rather have witnessed to them. He did 120 years, but they didn't listen. And so he became a testimony against them. And finally and fifthly, he won the favor of God. That is, God commended him for being righteous. For it says at the end of verse 7, 
He became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You know that when Noah and his family entered the ark, God spoke to Noah. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that he did. And this is what he said. He said, Noah, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That's awesome. He he'd spent years listening to people saying, you idiot. This isn't going to happen. It's never rained before. What makes you think it's going to rain in the future? There's never been a judgment like what you've described. It'll never happen. And he heard all of the taunts and all of the opinions. That narrow-minded preacher. And then God said, you're righteous, Noah, in this generation. Isn't that a great opinion to have? Can you see why it's better to be a slave of God's opinion than a man's opinion? Who cares what people think when you serve the Lord? Who cares what things they say against you? What matters is if the Lord God would say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Is it possible for one man to be right and the majority be wrong? Sure is. John said in his epistle, We are of God, little children, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That sounds arrogant. No, it's just honest. God has given His truth. How do you respond to it? You moved with godly fear, obeying God, walking with God, living for God. Then God will say, well done. You are righteous in the midst of this generation. There's a columnist from Chicago, Illinois, from the Chicago Tribune named Bob Green. He has a theory of what's wrong with the world. And he wrote a little humorous column that has a lot of truth to it. He just simply says, what's wrong with the world is the death of the permanent record. The death of the permanent record. He says, let me explain. We grew up, most of us, or the older generation, in school, believing that if you misbehave, there's a record that will be kept, a permanent record of your wrongs. And it's that permanent record that keeps a lot of people, and they learn it from an early age, at doing a lot of bad things. Because they don't want it on their record. But now there's an emphasis on personal privacy, the Freedom of Information Act, and you can't look at my records or I'll sue you. And there's people who don't believe that there's a permanent record. And his philosophy is that because of the death of the permanent record, people say, I can do whatever I want to. I can get away with anything. Nobody will find out. Except God keeps a record. The eyes of the Lord, the Bible says, are in every place beholding good and evil. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding good and evil. I'd rather stick out as a nonconformist than be a dead fish that floats downstream. It doesn't take courage to float downstream. It took courage to be Noah. But that's what faith does. A final warning. Very clear warning. To some who might be in the audience who have come every week and heard messages about God's grace and future judgment, flee from the wrath that is to come. Let not this message haunt you in eternity as a testimony against you. God is gracious. God is patient. God hasn't judged the earth like He will, but He will. And we will all stand before His judgment seat one day. Be moved with godly fear. There's an ark named Jesus. Hop aboard. It's the only hope. Heavenly Father, we see that your word, as always, is clear, precise. And we see, as usual, that men and women of faith have a surpassing acumen, an insight, a perspective, that in the midst of darkness, 
enables us to soar with you and see things like no one else. Though we who believe your word and trust you with our lives may be a minority, we're reminded of that exhortation of Martin Luther who said, with God, one is a majority. I pray that we will align ourselves with you and your principles. And Father, I pray for those who have come week after week to this or other churches. They've been religious in their past, but they don't know you personally. They don't walk with you. They have not fled to Jesus for refuge, for refuge, for refuge, for refuge.